Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough. Today, we have returning guest Richard Hanania with us. Richard, as you may recall, is the president for the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. He also has a new book out, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, colon, How Generals, Weapons Manufacturers, and Foreign Governments Shape America's Foreign Policy. Uh, that will be the discussion of today's conversation. Richard, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what is the book about? Uh, the book is basically about American foreign policy. And I think, you know, though, if I would, you know, if I was trying to sell someone on the book, I'd say, you know, if you're somebody who uh, knows a bit about American foreign policy, maybe you're not a uh, specialist in the, in the field. Um, I think that, you know, if you're going to say, is there one book to understand American foreign policy, uh, you know, taking as broad a theoretical perspective and have it, and having a book that also grapples with sort of the uh, empirical realities that you can read about, you know, every day in the newspaper, uh, I think. You know, I don't know if there's any any book quite like this. So basically, I'm trying to under, understand American foreign policy um, by looking at the starting sort of with the academic literature, what um, international relations theorists and scholars say. Um, I tend to take issue with their uh, assumption that states act as rational actors, uh, what I call the unitary actor model. Um, and I argue that the public choice perspective is superior for understanding American foreign policy, in particular, perhaps foreign policy of other uh, countries too. And then there's a um, there's a chapter on uh, different aspects of American foreign policy. So where troops are stationed abroad and when force is used, um, uh, the sanctions regime, the war on terror, uh, how the US responds to rising powers. So I, it's a broad book and it has a lot of thoughts on American foreign policy. And I'm trying to give people a comprehensive comprehensive overview that, you know, there's a lot of disparate facts out there and I'm trying to bring them together and give people a theoretical lens to understand what's going on. Okay. So your book, you know, it's, it's one of those books where you describe kind of the academic consensus on a subject as being, as being wrong or incomplete. And then you try and use analytic tools from another discipline to shed more light on it. Although ironically, the discipline involved is economics. You're not an economist. So maybe you're a bit of a trader there, but what is public choice economics, right? This is this is the lens that you, you that you're using. So, like briefly, what what's that about? Yeah. So economics um, starts from the uh, assumption that individuals are rational actors, and it builds models based on that assumption, right? Um, and then public choice is basically using the tools of economics to understand politics. It has a nice uh, one sentence definition, but it, it's pretty radical in its implications because it's uh, it sort of takes apart the naive uh, way a lot of people understand politics, and it also so, um, I, you know, it has it's, it's made it's made its way into um, political science too. So it's not completely foreign to political science. I'd say something like the public choice model, even though they don't um, necessarily uh, they don't necessarily call it that. You know, they don't explicitly uh, acknowledge the debt to economics. I think that this is the way that a lot of political scientists understand Congress and the way it works. Uh, for example, um, so yeah, that's public choice theory. I think we need much more of it in in international relations. Okay, and the big so when you say that you know the theory that you're critiquing 
thing is that for, uh, like American foreign policy is rational. It doesn't see, you know, just I think the average person, if you were to tell them that this is the thesis of the book, they'd be like, well, yeah, of course, it's obvious. You just look, it's obviously not rational. So why? But this is, as you say, if you talk to academics, they this is the model that they have of trying to explain behavior. So what? Wh- why is it that that experts typically think that our foreign policy is rational, and then wh- why are they why are they wrong about that? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, if you survey the sort of academics on international relations, and if you just go and sort of look at the different fields and schools of thought, you're going to get you know. Of things all over the place, um, you know. I, but I do think that the unitary actor model, the rational choice model, as applied to uh, states, is the dominant paradigm in international relations. And I think it's the way that we most commonly talk about. I think if you just go to like a Brookings uh, Institution uh, report, or you just re- read an article in the Washington Post, I think that, that the assumption basically is there's some coherent strategy of what the U.S. and other countries too uh, are doing abroad. Why does this, um, you know, why is this such a prominent view? I, I think it's because it, you know, it's it, it's useful to a lot of people. I mean, politicians they want to um, they want to look as if their decisions actually matter. They're not just uh, slaves of inertia or bureaucratic forces or public opinion. You know, they have something called grand strategy. A lot of international relations uh, intellectuals and and scholars have often uh, uh, ambitions um, for working in government. There's a lot of uh, uh, sort of overlap between the policy world and the uh, uh, scholarly world in this field. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, ten- they're going to tend to flatter the sensibilities of those in power. And that includes not just the elected officials, uh, but also the government uh, bureaucracy. So I think it's something, you know, I think it's a, um, I think the, uh, the myth of grand strategy is something that's very, very useful uh, to people in power, even if it's not necessarily true. Well, it seems to me that there's a historical analogy here that this strikes me as being a similar thought to uh, President Eisenhower warning about the, the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Is this sort of uh, you know, an academic uh, take, sort of expanding on that type of notion? Yeah, uh, I think that's I think that's right. So if you look at the subtitle of the book, it's how generals, uh, uh, weapons manufacturers, and foreign governments, you know, two of those three, the first two, um, uh, can be considered part of the military-industrial complex. I think you're right. I mean, I think Eisenhower is an interesting case because, um, you know, he didn't do much to – uh, to really check the military industrial complex, he gave it actually probably, you know, he probably uh, helped it move it along, but he saw sort of what was happening. Um, so yeah, I, you know, absolutely. I think that if you, you know, and, and I, another thing that's, that's great about the, the farewell address where he talks about that is he talk about, talks about the cultural uh, sort of influence of, uh, of this. And I think that this is less, ex- you know, this is less extreme than uh, it was at the beginning of the Cold War. Uh, but you did have this sort of militarization of uh, like our thought patterns to the rest of the world. I mean, we still have that. There was a lot of that, especially more so in the war on terror. A lot of the, uh, you know, TV hit TV shows and the movies of the time, you know, focused on this sort of warrior mentality going out there and, and fighting and killing the bad guys. And my, my book, you know, when understanding American foreign policy, it's, you know, ideas and interests 
both matter, but which ideas uh, tend to predominate at any one time uh, depends on uh, the, the interest groups involved. So people, you know, there's people with all kinds of views on American foreign policy, um, and the ones that get ahead tend to be the ones that get the financial support, the uh, the sort of the the legitimacy from working in governments, from uh, from uh, uh, from being liked by the you know the most powerful institutions, and you know people with certain ideas get ahead in Washington, and certain certain people with other ideas don't and i think that all of basically is rooted in uh in uh, which concentrated interests have a stake in the, uh, the policy outcomes yeah and i suppose it's sort of a you know i think there's a probably a lesson there from eisenhower in world war ii that you have this giant military buildup you know for obvious reasons during world war ii and then it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle because of all those vested interests that are going to go find the next the next threat that we have to continue the funding for. Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, that's right. So one of the um, you know most interesting facts I think I present in my book is basically the U.S. Uh, where American troops are uh, over, uh, overseas, they tend to be in the same places they were in 1950. So the U.S. has the most troops now in Germany, Italy, Japan, South Korea. If you look at a map of the, uh, the places where American had troops in 1950, it looks very similar. Those were also the four uh, countries with the most troops. Uh, that year. Um, and so, you know, you see this historical pattern where, you know, the world changes, but then sort of the justification for what the U.S. is doing uh, doesn't really change, um, even within one particular war. I mean, Afghanistan started as a, you know, very clearly as a war about um, uh, getting revenge and uh, bringing the people who perpetrated 9-11 to justice. Um, after a while, you know, we, we killed a lot of them and, and basically Al-Qaeda had uh, less of a presence after a decade in war. And then it had to be basically, we had to uh, uh, build up a stable democracy, you know, for, for whatever reason, people would say American credibility. Some people would say, you know, we can't abandon the women of Afghanistan. Some people would say, uh, we, you know, we can't show a lack of resolve and it'll embolden China and Russia if we leave. Uh, so, you know, they're just very, very good at sort of making excuses for doing the same thing that we've been doing before. Um, and then like you look at sort of uh, historical trends in American foreign policy, you see after the Cold War, I mean, the 1990s, we start hearing about, you know, failed states and rogue regimes, you know, things that have always existed. They didn't really become that much more dangerous in the 1990s. And we heard about, you know, humanitarian intervention, responsibility to protect, you know, again, the, you know, across government atrocities have been uh, going on forever. So it's not like there was something new, but we had, you know, but we needed a justification. And then when 9-11 came, you know, that gave us a justification for another 20 years of an expansive foreign policy. Right now we're coming out of 9-11, I think, you know, with Russia and China and great power competition, as they call it. I think we're sort of uh, looking for looking for something new. Um, and, you know, I think that's, the, that you know, you could see this recurring pattern of the sort of the, uh, you know, instead of the um, reality creating the strategy, I mean, the, the strategy or sort of the posture abroad uh, shapes sort of reality and what we're seeing in the world. Well, I want to talk about, you know, what comes next, but I did have a question first about the third uh, group in your uh, subtitle list. So you, you and Doug have been talking about the generals and the war manufacturers. It certainly could see how they would uh, have an influence on a foreign policy. But also, if you think, when I think about public choice, obviously, I think the most famous idea there is, as you say, the concentrated versus diffuse benefits that if you have like a concentrate, a small group that is very interested in an issue, they tend to win out over a lot of people who have a, a like a milder interest or whatever. Right. And uh, foreign, you know, foreign governments uh, influencing American foreign policy, that would seem to be 
a pretty obvious case of that where the government's, you know, or like the the government of uh just to pick a country at random, you know, uh uh Colombia, right? Or uh-huh. uh Poland, you know, they're much or uh you know, they're much much more concerned with American foreign policy vis-a-vis Colombia and Poland than the average American is right. Sure. So what, I mean, how does that factor in, in, ter- in terms of like, uh, shaping American foreign policy? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So, I mean, one, some, one thing people have asked is basically if, how can foreign governments, you know, the foreign governments have the same problem. You're saying the American government doesn't have a, uh, you know, a single grand strategy, you know, it's manipulated by all these interests. Wouldn't that also be true for foreign governments? How can foreign governments be a source of influence in the U.S.? And I think you've sort of hit the, you've sort of uh, hit on why, um, why it's different, right? Because the, basically the, the U.S. Um, does, it, most of these things don't really matter to the U.S. I mean, in the long run, I mean, we fought a war in Vietnam. I mean, we lost. It didn't, you know, end the American way of life. I mean, we fought a war in Afghanistan. We've had wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, they were terrible for the people who went over there and, you know, gave their lives and were injured, of course, and it cost a lot of money, but it basically didn't, you know, losing those wars. And if we would have won those wars, I mean, it didn't really change how most Americans lived, um, their safety or their uh, well-being or their, you know, their uh, uh, level of economic development. Um, and saying, you know, it's even more so when we put on sanctions on a country or we, uh, we just bomb them and we don't, you know, we don't necessarily stay like we did in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, and in each one of these, you know, each pretty much each one of these cases, when we're looking at a foreign policy issue, the country involved has more of a stake in the outcome than the United States does. So Ukraine is in the news right now. Russia cares a lot more about Ukraine than the US does for, you know, uh, for reasons rooted in uh, geography, economics, culture, you know, whatever, 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 whichever way you want to look at it. Um, people in East Asia care more about East Asia. People in, uh, you know, the Afghans, um, the ones who wanted to fight the, the Americans, um, they cared more about what happened to their country than the U- United States did. Um, so, you know, when something is exist, when, when a, uh, an issue is existential for, in this case, an insurgent movement or for a government or for a society, um, that tends to really focus the mind and sort of, uh, uh, sort of narrow narrow the range uh, within which people uh, disagree about things. So you can understand why um, countries, you know, in the Middle East, uh, countries uh, in Eastern Europe, when they're lobbying for NATO, or when countries in the Middle East are lobbying against, uh, uh, you know, against uh, uh, making a deal with Iran, you can see why that would, you know, they would be particularly influential, because to us, you know, to them, it's issue number one or two um, in their politics. To us, it's issue number 50. You know, it's never going to rise to the level of critical race theory or uh, you know, trans and trans and women's sports, or even our you know tax rate, or or anything like that. I mean, we just we just don't care. I mean, it's really really down there. Um, if you're just going to list sort of all the salient issues in American politics, and when the you know when the public is paying attention uh, least, and it has less the, whenever an issue has the least direct influence on people's lives, that's when uh, concentrated interests can get their way because there isn't uh, there isn't uh, much place in the democratic process to check their influence. So let's. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ukraine and Russia, which may or may not be going to war at any time. I haven't really been following this this too closely because every time I I try to read up on it, the whole thing makes so little sense to me that I just give up. But <laughs> what 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 like to the to, like how what, what's going on there, and how, how do you, how does some of these ideas apply 
to this situation there, you know, but, but I mean, both for us and them, but I guess we have probably have a better sense of like what's motivating the American side of things. But what do you think? So, I mean, it's, you know, the issue is that basically the U S has been uh, expanding NATO East um, since the collapse of the Soviet union. And then I think uh, there was used to be a little bit of a debate over whether they promised the Soviet union that they wouldn't do this. I think it's clear that they, they probably did. Um, my old, uh, uh, my old advisor, Mark Trachtenberg, UCLA has a great, uh, paper on this, and so basically, the, the U.S. has become has become getting closer and closer to uh, Russians Russia's borders, um, and um, you know, you, the U.S. supported a uh, overthrow of the government in Ukraine uh, in uh, 2014. This was a government that was uh, cl- moving closer to Russia, um, and so you know, the question was always, you know, well, what's sort of Ukraine's future going to be? It's a country that's divided by Ukrainian speakers and and Russian speakers, um, and you know, I think. That there's been a lot of movement about you uh moving Ukraine towards NATO. I mean, there's nothing on the table that's going to happen in you know one year or two years or maybe five years. But basically, I think a lot of people in the American establishment want uh, Ukraine to eventually be part of NATO. And Russia, you know, simply simply does not want this. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the Russians started saying in December, you know, they started, they began a troop buildup. Um, you know, it started appearing in the American press that they were, you know, the American intelligence thought that a uh, uh, an invasion was, you know, possible um in the near future and basically there's been negotiations going on for the last you know a month or a month or month and a half um about um uh last month actually since the negotiations started um and about you know well you know how are we going to settle this without a conflict um the uh u.s has so far publicly you know said that uh nato um you know, expansion can't be taken off the table. You know, we've talked, they've talked about uh, other things too. You know, Russia's also been, uh, it's clear that Ukraine is sort of the motivating factor here, but Russia's also talked about uh, pulling back, you know, missiles from uh, the countries that were uh, added to NATO in, in the, over the last few decades. Um, and then the US, you know, says, you know, we can talk about a lot of things, but they don't want to, you know, they don't want to close the door on NATO membership in Ukraine. And uh, there's still a, um, there's still a conflict in the East between Russian backed separatists and uh, the Ukrainian government and so it's um you know it's a place where basically the russians have a demand the u.s you know doesn't think that demand is fair or reasonable we're just we're just sort of waiting right now as of today to see what happens next the thing that doesn't quite that that i can't quite get my head around is i can understand that russia would not want ukraine to join nato i i mean i guess i would agree with vladimir putin on that i do not want ukraine to join nato and i you know the other things that you talk about but these all seem like they're they're long-term you know ukraine like the I think the last time Ukraine tried to join NATO was 2000, 2008 or whatever. It's not certainly not happening right now. So there's a question of like, why now? And then also, you know, like <laughs> invasion seems like a, I mean, it seems like a pretty significant escalation kind of out of nowhere. So I don't know, like, like, is there, is there something else there? Is this just like, it's inscrutable because unlike in the America, we have less of a sense of like what the different motivations are on that thing. 
I mean, do you have any sense of that? Uh, so why is this happening now? I think a good uh, uh, good article for people to read. It's on uh, Adam Tooze's uh, Substack, T-O-O-Z-E. It's called Putin's Challenge to Western Hegemony. It came out earlier uh, this month. And actually, there's a lot of, you know, there is a lot of movement. There were, uh, the Basically, the parliament of Ukraine in the last few years um, has been, uh, you know, passing, uh, passing sort of resolutions, um, calling on NATO to bring them in. Uh, NATO itself is sort of a lobbying group. So, you know, like the leaders of NATO have been uh, making noises. Um, So it does seem like there is movement here. It's not going to happen like next year or two years from now. Um, But, you know, eventually it, you know, it, 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 it looks like you know. I don't. I don't doubt that the Americans, you know, want it. Uh, want it to happen eventually. That is the Amer- you know many in the American establishment, not necessarily Biden or Blinken. I don't know if they care, but I think the people who think most about Russia and Russia pol- Russia policy um, want Ukraine and uh, EU and uh, NATO uh, eventually, right? And they, I think they see the sort of uh, the U.S. trying to build the Ukraine, help build the Ukrainian economy, help build the Ukrainian military. Um, so you know the, the t- you know the question is if this you know drags for another ten. 15 years um you know what's is russia going to be in a stronger position in a weaker position maybe they think they're going to be in a weaker position i think the one thing that people uh, you know don't think a lot about is we basically we we recently had a um, a very rare thing um in world in geopolitics uh, which was a war between two states with actual modern armies when uh, armenia fought azerbaijan um and basically you know we saw that you know tanks you know the the the, um, the, the lesson of, of that was drones are really really powerful weapons against tanks um and so that means a, a weaker country can potentially um you know that could be an equalizer when a weaker country faces off against a stronger country with a uh, with a conventional military um so russia is you know by far the militarily uh, uh superior uh, country here um they think they may think that that uh the gap between them and ukraine is uh changing over t- is uh, changing over time i think there's political developments in ukraine too that are you know moving towards uh like breaking culturally politically economically with with russia um recent years they've been uh putting restrictions on the use of uh uh russian uh russian language they've been uh going after uh russian language media um so there is sort of a culture war within ukraine um that's also sort of i think you know in the long run you could see it just ukraine ukrainizing the whole country and making it more of a uh kind of like a homogenous uh, cultural nation state uh, rather than a uh, state that's split between, you know, Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, the question of, you know, the invasion is a, um, uh, does seem like an extreme step, but I, I, you know, it's, you, you, I think you use the, uh, you know, when you get what you want to try to get what you want, you use what your stronger, what your strength is. Russia is not the um, uh, strongest economy or the largest economy in Europe. Um, it has the largest army. It has the most uh, nuclear weapons. You know, it doesn't probably have the most, the best soft power or the best, uh, you know, or the, or you know, control of international institutions or or anything like that. Um, so you, you could see how they think. You know, if they're if they're just going to play sort of the rules by America's game, where it's all soft power and it's all you know funding uh, this or that country and. Uh, you know, uh, trying to, you know, get your way through the democratic process and through economic ties. Um, they might, they might think that they're, you know, necessarily that's not in their advantage in the long run. So I think there's a strategic con- con- context where once you get that Russia cares about Ukraine, maybe they shouldn't care about Ukraine. Maybe that's, that part is illogical, but once you, um, once you accept that, um, you know, I think there's a strategic logic where this all makes sense. 
Let me ask you this. I kind of see public choice uh, as an intellectual framework for analyzing sort of academically the relationships between parties, how they're making decisions, what their, you know, sort of what their constituency is, what their motivations or incentives are. But is there also an aspect of it that is provides any type of principles for decision making? I, you know, it seems like the book is sort of viewing, viewing foreign policy as saying there's not this grand strategy and you're analyzing our foreign policy, but are you also offering any type of uh, intellectual framework, decision-making framework for, for actually making strategic policy? Uh, not, not really. I mean, I'm, it's more of an expl- – it's the book trying to understand and explain American foreign policy more than it is you know, sort of a blueprint for uh, making it better or making it more logical or coherent. I do have some suggestions in the last chapter um, about you know, ways sort of if you, if you dislike Ameri- you know, what the U.S. is doing abroad uh, – um, you know, what you might advocate. So you might advocate, you know, changing the incentive structure. So things on like restrictions on uh, lobbying, you know, you can have restrictions on foreign money, you could have disclosure, uh, you could have, you know, an under, you could have a, um, you know, I, I think sort of like uh, journalistic practices, I think, uh, help to sort of aid in the bet the way the things are working now. So for example, when a general is on TV now, um, they refer to him as, you know, former uh, national security advisor, they'll refer to Nikki Haley as the uh, former UN ambassador. And often these people are working for a, a defense contractor or some kind of consulting firm with, uh, with government contracts. I mean, I think, I think, we, we understand that you know these are not only ex-government officials, but you know current people working in business and making a profit and having a, a certain financial interest in many of the things that they talk about. I think that could uh, that could change the culture. Um, I you know, but I think I think actually the most. Um, uh, the most uh, sort of profound insight that I can offer for somebody who wants to change uh, American foreign policy is the status quo matters uh, a lot. Um, so if you have like a, you know, in, in Trump's last days in office after he uh, lost the election, um, you know, there was plans he was going to, uh, he was going to finally pull off the Afghanistan withdrawal. People said he was trying to get troops out of uh, Germany, um, and he was, you know, just sort of out of spite was sort of going to wreck the whole <laughs> was to wreck the whole empire, and that didn't actually happen. But if somebody, if something like that did happen, um, you know, you you could create a new reality. I mean, it's like you know, when once Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, if Biden would have stayed in Afghanistan, we could have been there for another twenty or thirty, uh, twenty or thirty years because it's actually hard to leave. But once you leave, you know, there, I, there's, I think there's no possibility of the u.s going back into afghanistan um no matter you know no matter what happens i mean it's just the the you know the status quo is just a very strong force in american foreign policy so if you wanted to change american foreign policy i think you just want a you want presidential leadership you just want to do you just want to do one thing that creates a new reality and that could go in either direction that could be you know pulling troops out of somewhere or uh you know destroying an alliance or it could be starting an alliance or uh sending troops to a foreign country you know either either way um I think understanding inertia is sort of driving a lot of American foreign policy uh, means that things are mostly going to stay the way they were. But that means when things do change, it tends to be a very big deal. So let me, uh, so you had a Substack post earlier this week about the outsized importance of LGBTQ whatever issues in American foreign policy, uh, particularly with reference to Russia, but I know I've talked talked with people in like East Asia or whatever, um, and they they see the same sort of dynamics there too. Why don't you ex- explain a little bit what you think that's about and how it relates to some of the themes and issues that you bring up in in your book? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, the, uh, so one thing I mean to understand from the beginning is that the American foreign policy elites, uh, they're the same people as the American elites more generally. You know, if you say the American elites behaving in a crazy way and your model of the world is, you know, they're fanatics on an issue um, when it comes to what's going on at home, um, I think your model of the world should say they're going to be fanatical, uh, biased in a similar direction uh, when they go abroad. Um, and so if you study American foreign policy, it's remarkable the extent to which how much of the sort of uh, the propaganda, the ideology, um, the sort of tensions with other countries depend on identity issues. So uh, Afga- women in Afghanistan near the end of the war. I mean, that was one of the main, um, the one, that was one of the main uh, sort of um, talking points about not leaving in Afghanistan. I mean, I have a, a old thread on the Afghanistan papers and they're interviewing government Afghan officials. They said, you know, women had to be involved in every single thing that the U.S. did. Um, it just complicated everything and it, you know, it caused rebellions, but you know, whatever. It was like, you know, this was going to make the war harder and it was going to keep it going. But, you know, women's rights is just women's rights. I mean, that just is sort of of a, an absolute, um, you know, an absolute, it's, it's a non-starter to, uh, to, to not, you know, protect women's rights or try to move, uh, move a country forward. Um, if you have the power to do so, um, the Afghan government right now, I mean, one of the main things that, you know, the Taliban, they can't get recognition and their uh, uh, the country is actually facing mass starvation according to aid groups. And, you know, the U S demand is a more inclusive government. The U S wants women and, you know, women in the government. So this is just so fundamental, um, to American foreign policy. LGBTQ is the same way. I argue that about 2013, when Russia passed a law against uh, gay pro- uh, uh, propagating uh, gay propaganda uh, towards minors, um, that was really a turning point in sort of how the U.S. viewed Russia. Um, and I think that a lot of the hostility towards countries like uh, uh, Hungary and Poland, um, I have a uh, um, I have a Substack called the woke uh, the um, uh, the woke imperialism of uh, Freedom House. Um, you know, these countries are called uh, non-democracies now are moving away from democracy. I don't think there's an objective basis to this. I mean, they have elections. I mean, the, the nationalists and the conservatives have been winning uh, recently, um, but there's still elections, you know, and they, they have, you know, they don't even arrest people in spe- for speech like the way they do in much of Western Europe, like they do in France and Germany and Sweden and the United Kingdom. Um, so I think that, you know, these, these sort of uh, cultural resentment which are so important at home, you know, when Americans, uh, uh, you know, you just look at they look at issues like uh, police shootings and you know the crime rates in our in our inner cities and what shootings, you know, and what crimes the uh, you know the establishment is comfortable talking about and what what kind of things they want to sweep under the rug. I argue you see you see a lot of the same patterns abroad. Uh, Putin, you know, was seen as a terrible man for being a, a homophobe and an anti-feminist. I mean, the Pussy Riot uh, arrests um, in uh, in uh, the early 2010s, that was also another, you know, turning point the, uh, a year a year or two before uh, the gay propaganda law. That was sort of, there was like a mini fury about that than the gay propaganda law. I mean, I think, it, I think it probably, I can't measure this, but I, you know, for my, um, so for, for my just paying attention, I think it probably got more attention um, than any internal event to Russia since the uh, uh, end of the end of the Cold War, and it, you know, it was a, a law that said no propaganda to children. I mean, there's us something like seventy countries which ban homosexual relations. You know, Russia doesn't even Russia doesn't even do that. Um, and so, 2016 comes along, and they sort of hate Russia already. Um, they, a lot of the media and the elite, and then you know, they they end up the the mess with the 2016 election. They also start blaming uh, Putin for giving us Trump. 
And I think right now you're at the point where basically, you know, you have the you have the conservatives, you have Republicans who, even though there's a lot of anti-war sentiment, you know, among like media commentators and intellectuals, uh, you don't see that in Congress as much. And Congress, basically, all Republicans are just you know as pro-war and as hawkish as you know as they were during Bush and uh, during the Bush and Cheney days. Um, so you have them, you know, hating Russia, and then you have the uh, the Democrats um, who hate Russia for you know cultural reasons, plus blaming them for uh, giving us. Trump. And this is why I think it is so hard to have like, you know, to have any kind of agreement. That's why I think Biden just can't do it. If he went out and tried, he would be crucified. Isn't some of the problem, you know, is the public is so, so fickle when it comes to foreign policy and military action that it, it, it seems like the military, it seems like the public is, is very eager to support uh, military action at the out- onset, even with warnings that they're, you know, it's going to become a quagmire and all this type of thing. Uh, and then uh, before any pullout, like in in Afghanistan, there's you know there's there's interest. You know we we need to end this. We, we need to end the you know the the endless wars and all this type of thing. And then as soon as you actually do pull out of Afghanistan, you know that then you, you we all see what happened to. Uh, uh, to Joe Biden and, and how disastrous that was for him politically is part of the problem. Just how fickle the public is. Yeah, I think the public is uh, f- uh, fickle. That's that's true. Uh, but they're also, you know, they don't think about foreign affairs a lot, and they don't know a lot about foreign affairs, even compared to other issues where people might not know all that much. I mean, in foreign affairs, you know, you have an un- un- uninformed public in, in general, but it's much, you know, it's much more uninformed on foreign policy, which has no firsthand experience on, and it's no strong feelings really towards uh, countries, you know, based on anything but what the media is saying saying about them on a particular time. So I think that people who like the status quo, who like American uh, having a large American presence abroad, having a sort of a mil- uh, militaristic posture abroad, I think they can take uh, advantage of that. So when Biden pulls out of Afghanistan, you know, when, when a president stays in Afghanistan, it basically stays out of the headlines. You know, everyone ignores it. Um, it's unpopular, but it's, you know, it doesn't rise to the level of it's like an issue people vote on uh, because it's just, it's just, you know, out of sight, out of mind compared to everything else that's going on in the world. Um, and then when Biden does pull out of Afghanistan, I mean, there's, you know, there's just basically a pandemonium, you know, it's, it's hysteria. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, people can criticize the way that the uh, Afghanistan withdrawal went down. I've argued that it couldn't have gone down, you know, it was hard to, you know, it's hard to say like, how it could have worked out better just because the people aren't really grappling with the extent of the U.S. failure. I mean, we had no control over anything in that country and the, uh, and the government was basically a house of cards. Um, and so, you know, under that circumstances, uh, evacuating all these people was just going to be difficult no matter what. I mean, it was going to be hard. Um, and so, but people don't see that. People see the mess at the end. Um, they see, you know, the, uh, you know, the people desperate to get out. Uh, they see the one terrorist attack at the end, although there was terrorist attacks and there were bombings and the, you know, the Americans were dying before Trump uh, made the deal with the Taliban uh, to basically have a ce- have a ceasefire as the U.S. withdrew. Um, but people, you know, that that, that all was ignored. Um, and then the Afghan withdrawal was all we sa- we saw. I think it sends a signal to any other president that you know if he's going to do anything that's going to seem a little bit messy, um, it's going to be very very difficult. Um, the Afghan, but the, at the same time, the Afghan. Uh, 
wrapping up the Afghan war was a little bit of a unique circumstance. So if you can do things more quietly, um, you know, maybe it can, uh, you know, maybe you can actually change foreign policy. But I, you know, I go back to when Trump talked on the phone with uh, Erdogan and, uh, when he was president and basically came to the, came to the uh, agreement that the U.S. would pull out of, uh, pull out of Syria and let Turkey basically do what it wanted in the north of that country. Um, and, you know, the, the, there was no, you know, major terrorist attack like there was at the end of the Afghanistan withdrawal. But basically, the media all of a sudden got very, very interested in foreign policy, right? And it was just, they were just killing Trump on it. And, he, you know, he went back on his agreement. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that uh, the there's a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment who have close relationships with journalists. I think a lot of national security reporting is based on access, um, access to people being able to interview them, but also a lot of uh, access to information, you know, especially classified information, which uh, people in the government can provide uh, to those who you who they want who they want to provide it to and the people they tend to want to provide it to um, are people who agree with them and agree with their political agenda um, so yeah I mean this it, it, you know presidents can change change things, like I said uh, earlier, but there's a lot of, you know, practical obstacles to actually doing so. So heading into, it's a little ways off, but heading into the 2024 election, what do you think is going to be the the biggest foreign policy issue? Do you think Ukraine's going to still be lingering, that that will be the driving foreign policy issue? Or do you think that there will, that foreign policy is even going to be a factor in the 2024 election? It's hard to know because there's going to be, I mean, the, you, have, the, you have to sort of uh, uh, think about the state of geopolitics um, at, at, you know, uh, you know, th- uh, two years from two and a half years from now, um, I think the Ukraine and Russia issue. You know, it's. I think it's gonna. It's gonna either still be there. I mean, Russia is gonna invade, or it's not gonna invade. I don't think people are gonna forget that overnight. Um, so I think you know, I think that it could be just sort of there could be a narrative of Biden failed. You know, to stop Putin, even though that's not really fair. I mean, nobody could have really done. Hey, if Putin wants to invade Ukraine, there's not really anything any president uh, would do. You know, short of nu- short of nuclear war, um, and then you know the uh, the Afghan. Afghanistan withdrawal, people are still going to be talking about it. You know, again, it's not going to be like a substantive critique because no one is going to say we should go back to Afghanistan. You know, they're just going to say, uh, uh, they're just going to say Biden really screwed up. Um, you know, there was, um, and so, you know, I, I, it's hard It's hard to say. There could be other crises uh, by 2024. I think, you know, the, the China thing, who knows if that'll be, you know, exciting people that seems to be on the back burner now is, you know, the R- Russia and Ukraine uh, uh, is taking up sort of most of most of our attention in Afghanistan before that. Um, but yeah, I think I think there will be a narrative surrounding Biden uh, going into 2024. Um, I think that Biden is sort of uh, happens to be the president now um, when a lot when a lot of bad decisions in the past are basically um, they're coming to fruition, right? So the, the U.S. expanding NATO has been going on for uh, thirty years. We basically just now are getting to Russia's border. Every president um, since uh, George Herbert Walker Bush um, left office has has uh, been expanding NATO. Uh, but now, it's sort of you know, it's coming to a head. Uh, you know, the failure, you know, the the failure of Afghanistan. People notice the you know the ending of the war, not necessarily, um, uh, not necessarily. Uh, 
uh, you know, when the war was going on and the suffering of the Afghans and the, the Americans fighting the war at the time. And then you have, you know, the, the rise of China, which is, you know, inevitable. China was going to rise no matter what, and it was going to, um, it was going to, um, you know, have disputes with its neighbors. And because it's becoming, because it's becoming the dominant force in East Asia, it's often going to get what it wants in those disputes. No American president can do anything about th- about that. So I think Biden, you know, might it might matter for uh, uh, 2024. I think there's going to be probably a narrative of like Biden, you know, failed in all these ways. But the people who whoever's going to want to replace Biden, whether it's uh, Trump or it's another Republican, they're not going to have an answer as to what to do on each of these questions. That's going to make a lot of sense. Um, they're just going to try to make a uh, uh, try to gain politically from that, and then you know it'll be a factor in that way. So it won't be a substantive debate. It'll be more a a political issue for Biden as we go into 2024. Very good. Well, uh, Richard, uh, thank you for joining us. And again, your book is uh, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, How Generals, Weapons Manufacturers, and Foreign Governments Shape American Foreign Policy. Uh, where else can uh, can listeners find you? Okay, so yeah, for my book, let me just say the um, it's an uh, academic book, so it's very expensive and hardcover. It's like $160, so um, you're probably not going to buy that. The um, Kindle is more affordable. It's, 37, it's $37 on Amazon. Um, the other uh, eBooks might be uh, cheaper. There's also, you know, you could pirate it online. There's ways to do that, too. I'm not recommending people do that, um, but it is, a, it is an option of if you if you were uh, inclined to break the law. Um, but yeah, the Kindle version is the most affordable. You know, even though it's still expensive for a book, I, I highly recommend people uh, people get it and read it. And then if people want to find me, um, Richard Hanania, I'm on uh, richardhanania.substack.com. I'm also very active on Twitter. Um, so you know, those are the main places to find me. Also, uh, CSPI is my think tank. So CSPI.substack.com. You can stay on our mailing list um keep up with what we're doing there too all right thank you so much for joining us my pleasure